Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Good morning. I'm excited to have the opportunity uh, to preach. I count it a privilege uh, and uh, a very heavy responsibility to stand up and and preach the Bible. So I'm excited. Isaiah chapter 6, again, is where we are going to be. We will look at verses 1 through 7 through our time together, and, and this passage might be one that's, that's rather familiar to you. It's Isaiah's vision of the Lord, his call to ministry. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and I'll confess that one of the toughest aspects about, about preaching these standalone sermons that are that are outside of the normal series that we're in. So if you're a guest, we normally just work our way through books of the Bible. In this case, we're in Acts. But for today, I have the opportunity to, to preach something outside of that series. And so the question I'm, I'm constantly asking in preparation for uh, this opportunity is, what would be most beneficial to the church? Like, that's the question that's constantly being repeated. What, what would benefit the church? What would most help the church in this particular moment? And, and last time I preached, I tried to provide a type of reasoning for everything that we do. Uh, that was my, my sermon entitled, A More Sure Word, that, that everything we do is to be submitted to the Word of God. And I, I tried to put a rock under your feet because we live in a culture that... that focuses more on our experience, our own emotion, our own desires, as if that's the the standard of truth. But for us, we have a rock in the Word of God, in the Bible, that does not change. Our emotions change, our circumstances can certainly change, but the Bible never does because it is the Word of God. And for today, I want to do my best to put another rock under your feet. Maybe it's just me, but, but I can feel, feel the sand shifting underneath my feet in this culture. I, I'm, only, I'm only 28 years old, so uh, I'm not that old, but even in my short lifespan, like there are things being believed, being taught, being heralded as, as true, being celebrated that, that 10 or 15 years ago wouldn't have been imaginable. And, and these changes, these changes in morality, these changes in, in culture, like they're happening at lightning speed and there is no indication they are stopping anytime soon. And so it's easy for us to feel disoriented, like, like things are spinning out of control, that nothing is the same. So is... Is disorientation just simply going to be the way that it is for us from here on out? Is that our plight from, from here until Christ comes, just confusion and disorientation? Can we, as a Christian, have 
confidence, continue to have confidence, even when the entire country is seemingly going the opposite direction. When we're no longer popular, when we're no longer trusted, when we're no longer even viewed as moral. What confidence can we have when the world has changed? And the passage we're looking at this morning takes place in the midst of a time when the culture was in turmoil. As we'll see, the the death of a king left the nation reeling for direction. And it's in, in this moment, into that space, that Isaiah sees the Lord. And so my desire this morning for all of us is to see the Lord. <laughs> because the sight of the Lord will put steel in your spine. A, a sight of the Lord will put an anchor in your soul even when the waves are roaring all about you. It'll be a, a sure, secure foundation in the midst of an earthquake. But be warned, a a sight of God is not good for your self-esteem. It'll make us see ourselves as we really are, that we are small, that we are sinful, that we are desperate, that we are needy. And this is a, a good thing. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to feel good about themselves. Are, are you tracking with that? Like, you don't go to the Grand Canyon and look out over it and say, wow, I'm important. <laughs> you go there to feel small. And this is a, a painful realization in the presence of God that we need to have. This is, this is the medicine that, that's bitter going down that will actually heal your soul. We need desperately a sight of God. Because when we have a sight of God, when we realize that He is the one in control, then we're able to breathe. The the culture shifting makes no difference whatsoever to the rule and reign of our God. Everything has, has seemingly changed in our country in the last few decades, but I'll tell you, absolutely nothing has changed in heaven. And this is the rock I want to help put under your feet. Because if this is in place, if you have a rock solid confidence that God is in charge, then nothing will shake you. <laughs> but if you don't have this in place, then, then you are left blowing in the wind. So, so whether we recognize it or not, our greatest need is to know God. Knowing God is the most practical reality in the universe. It affects how we do everything. And so this morning, for my own soul and for yours, I want to help us in the pursuit of knowing and loving God through seeing Him on His throne. So hopefully you're in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll get through verses 1 through 7, but we'll start by reading verse 1. It says this, 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that you are in charge, that you are still seated on your throne, that we can have confidence because that's not going to change. And so, Lord, I I pray for these people, and and myself included. I I need this rock under my feet. And so, Lord, I, I pray you would move for the glory of Christ. Give us a sight of who you are and in getting a sight of who you are, a sight of who we are, and as a result, our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us. We desperately need you, whether we know it or not, to help us. It's for your son's beautiful name, I pray. Amen. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. So who is Uzziah? Seems rather important. Uzziah was a king of Judah. And not just any king. He was a king that reigned for 52 years. 52 years reigning over Judah. That's a long time. Richard Nixon was our president 52 years ago. In that time span, we've had 10 different chief executives of this country. The Vietnam War was going on 52 years ago. Gas was 36 cents a gallon. All in the Family was the number one television show. And my alma mater, Liberty University, was literally just starting. That's a long time to reign. An an entire generation of people could have easily been born, grown up, got married, had kids, worked, died, and not known another king. But the king has died. So the people are left wondering, what's next? What are we going to do? That can be very destabilizing for a nation, and, and Uzziah's life is really a, a Shakespearean tragedy. He was initially a great king. He sought the Lord. The Lord prospered him. Judah, the, the nation was brought to prosperity. Times were good. He conquered nations. And then in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15, we read this verse that's incredibly sad to me. 2 Chronicles 26, 15, this is towards the end of verse 15. It says, And his fame spread, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Till he was strong. Everything was going well. He was depending upon the Lord. He was relying on the Lord. He was following the Lord until he was strong. And then this is what we read next. But when he was strong... He grew proud to his destruction. He got strong. He grew proud to his own destruction. And in his case, what he did was he took upon himself the responsibility that was not meant for him. 
He's the king. He is to be the king. But he, he wanted to be more than the king. He wanted to worship God in his own way. So he walked into the temple. He took the incense and he burnt it and laid it on the altar. He wanted to be the one that worshiped God as he saw fit. The priest tried to stop him. He said, nope, I'm the king. And what happens? The Lord strikes him in that moment. He's given leprosy. He's given this skin disease that renders him unclean. So this once prosperous, powerful king dies in obscurity in a house away from the palace. That's a lesson to all of us. We never outgrow our dependence on God. We, we are always in need of Him. Pride leads to destruction. We need to take heed lest we also fall. It might not be as spectacular as Uzziah, but we will fall. So in that year... In the year where the monarch dies, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon his throne. So in the year where the king is laid in the grave, the nation is in mourning, Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the true king that is still reigning. Uzziah's death has not affected that whatsoever. God's reign, God's rule is not dictated by who is sitting on the throne or who occupies the Oval Office. His reign is secure. So in the midst of a nation mourning, Isaiah sees this clearly. And he, he's not just seated. Do you see that? He's sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. That's what the text says. High and lifted up. He's not eye level with Isaiah. Are, are you tracking with that? Like he's, he's high and lifted up. He doesn't lower himself as if he and Isaiah are equals in this moment. He is above everything. He rules and reigns over every other throne. Everything is below him. He is in control of all. He is high above it and this is one of the aspects of God that we quite honestly aren't always comfortable with we like a God who's like us one that we can we can pal around with that doesn't have any any big expectations for us who doesn't make us feel uncomfortable and, and yes praise the Lord that in Christ we have a God who is with us we celebrate Christmas right Emmanuel God with us Christ has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin so he can sympathize with us in our weakness god is a god that we can run to in our difficulties in our mess and he cares about us he tells us cast your cares on me i come to me come to me i care about you i i love you he's he's ready to stoop down to be with us but he is still infinitely above us so in our desire to worship god as imminent as, as close to us we cannot forget that he is transcendent that he is infinitely above us god did not lower his seat in this moment to make isaiah feel more comfortable 
He is high and lifted up, and he makes no apologies for that. And we need to stop making apologies for the fact that God is in charge. He gets to call the shots. And it says the, the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe. This is a symbol of magnificence. Think of a, a bride on her wedding day. If you've ever seen traditional gowns that have these long flowing gowns. Like, I feel bad for the, the maids of honor that their whole job is like, don't get this stepped on, like, move it out of the way, everybody's got to be able to see it. Like, I don't want that job. That's stressful. I don't want it. But originally, the, the long flowing trains in a dress, it was a sign of social rank. Because the wealthy people could afford more fabric. <laughs> so if you want to show off that you've got money, you make the dress super long. Or think of a, a king or a queen who maybe on uh, coming into, set on the throne, they have this long flowing uh, robe that these pages have to follow behind carrying. It's a sign, it's a symbol of magnificence. And the Lord's filled the temple. The entire temple was filled with the train of his robe. Isaiah would have been very familiar with the temple. This is not a small building. And the Lord's robe filled it. Like How magnificent is our God? It's being communicated in this way. Look at verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. God is not alone in this throne room. With him are these creatures called the seraphim. And interestingly enough, this is the only place in Scripture that they're mentioned. This is the only, only place where we read about this seraphim. And they, they seem to be creatures who have been designed by God specifically for the purpose of worshiping in his presence. That's their job. That's where they, they stay. And you, you might ask, how in the world do you do you know that they were specifically created for this purpose? That's a, that's a fair question. How you use something all depends on how it's built, right? So you can try to use your car as a boat, and it might work for about a second and a half, but it probably won't last long, and it'll probably only happen the one time. Because it hits and sinks. It was never designed for that. You could use your hall closet as a refrigerator. You can. But I'm not drinking any milk that you pull out of your hall closet. You can try to use a bowling ball on a golf course, but I'm willing to bet the head of your driver is probably going to go farther than the golf ball after you tee up. 
Because how something is designed determines how and where it is to be used. So, so God is the wise creator of all. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is extra or superfluous. And these creatures are built to be in his presence. They have six wings. You see that? With two, they cover their face. They, they cover their face so that they don't look on the glory of God in full measure. Because even these creatures, if they look on the glory of God, they will be destroyed. So they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. Their, their feet is a sign of their creatureliness. That even though they're flying, their, their feet is a connection to the ground. Think of, for instance, Moses at the burning bush. Take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. His feet is a, a sign of his, his creatureliness compared to God. And with two, they flew. Each set of wings were designed, were placed to be in the presence of God. And they aren't silent either. <laughs> what are they calling back and forth to each other? Back and forth. One, called one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And one answers the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Back and forth. Back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. And this is... This is the only attribute of God, His holiness, that is repeated in Scripture to the third degree. You see, in Hebrew, the way you emphasize something is to repeat it. For English, what we'll do, you can underline something, you can make it bold. Maybe you do an exclamation, uh, exclamation point if you want to yell at somebody in text message, you write in all caps, right? We have ways to emphasize something, but for Hebrew, you repeat it. Think of Jesus, for instance, when he's preaching, he's getting ready to say something important. What does he preface it by saying? Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, that repetition, that, that tells the crowd, hey, listen up, whatever I'm about to say, you should probably pay attention to. So when the angels, when these seraphim are describing God, they use one word to the superlative degree, to the highest degree possible. So you have the word, for instance, good. The next level up, you have better. That's the comparative degree. The superlative degree is what? Best. So the highest degree possible, they are repeating that God is holy. So God is not just holy, and he isn't just holy, holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Holiness pervades everything that he does. Everything. The Bible does not say that God is love, 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 or merciful, 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 we're just, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. That means his, his love towards you is a holy love. 
His wrath is holy wrath. His mercy is holy mercy. It pervades everything he does. His, his holiness is his absolute moral purity. His perfection in every way imaginable. Absolute purity. But the word can also mean set apart. The Latin word for holy is the word sanctus. Where for Christians, the more we mature in our walk with Christ, the more we are set apart for him, the more we grow in our holiness and more Christ-likeness, we are sanctified. But God, unlike us, doesn't need to be set apart. Because he is apart. He is completely other from us. So, so when we call God holy, when the seraphim are calling God holy, we're acknowledging that he's different from us. He's not just bigger than us. He's not just smarter than us. He's not just stronger than us. He's of a whole nother kind. That he is the creator, the author of all, who has life in himself. He is holy, and we're not. So in declaring his praise, you see what happens? Verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Who's calling right now? The seraphim. God hasn't spoken yet. <laughs> so, so the threshold of the building shakes at the calling of the seraphim. If that's what the thresholds do when the angels speak, when the seraphim speak, how much more powerful is God? I'll say it like this. If the JV team is beating a team by 50, how much better should varsity be? Like the seraphim would, would be enough to terrify us to our core. Like I don't think we're going to get to heaven and it's going to be like these little babies floating around with wings. Like they would, they would terrify us and yet they can't even look on God. They can't even look on God. And it says the house was filled with smoke. Why? Seems a little odd, isn't it? And the house fills with smoke for the same reason that the angels have a set of wings to cover their face. Because Isaiah doesn't have wings to cover his face, does he? So God, in his mercy, fills the room with smoke so that Isaiah doesn't look on the glory of God, lest he also be destroyed. This is God's mercy to Isaiah. And look at Isaiah's response. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't feel too big right now, does he? 
He doesn't feel too important. And the first reality he is conscious of in the presence of God is his own sin. In the presence of the holy, 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 he feels his sin. And it's amazing to me because the, the place he mentioned is probably the place that he's most sanctified. For I am a man of unclean lips. He's a, he's a prophet. His job is to speak the word of God. We're in chapter 6, correct? That means there's five chapters that come before this. There's five chapters of Isaiah speaking the word of God, yet in the presence of God, what he understands is my lips are sinful. Even our best qualities are marred by sin. And, and the problem is, this, this isn't often taught. And if it is taught, it, it's often undone by others. Man, the, the self-esteem movement is killing our ability to witness to people. Because people, especially, uh, I'll say my generation and younger, have been taught from birth, hey, you aren't all that bad. You're really a good person. You can do it on your own. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. And, and calling people to repent and, and telling them that not only are they not good, but they're so sinful that the Son of God had to be slaughtered in their place falls on deaf ears. And in an effort to, to make, fee, uh, make people feel better about themselves, we're actually, we're actually putting them on a road of damnation paved with self-importance and self-sufficiency. People have no idea of their true state. What our culture desperately needs is not a feel-good, cuddly God of their own imagination, but we need the radically holy God who is completely other. And it's only when we, we understand the holiness of God that Isaiah sees that we can actually understand our true condition. Because it's only when we understand God's holiness and our own sinfulness that the cross makes sense. Because if God isn't that holy and we aren't that bad, the cross is, is really irrelevant. Without an understanding of holiness, without an understanding of our own sinfulness, none of it makes sense. And so Isaiah's response is the correct response. What is his response? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. This isn't just a, oh, I feel bad about myself. He, he's a prophet. And a woe is a declaration of a curse. Think of even Jesus' words, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a curse. And so Isaiah, finally having a sight of his own true condition in that moment, calls down a curse on himself. 
Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And not only that, he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a land that's full of sin. So I'm led to ask, if if this is the case for Isaiah, how much more should our response be, woe is me? If this prophet who's been commissioned by God to speak the word of God says, woe is me, I should probably say, woe is me. And if he can take a look at his culture and say, I dwell in a land that's full of sin, surely I should look around and say, I dwell in a land that's full of sin. Should not our hearts burn within us? And should that not lead us to to feel our sin and freely confess it to God? Why, Why is Isaiah acting this way? You see it. Because his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see God as he truly is, your response initially will be personal undoing. Because if you get a sight of God, then you understand your lostness. And this is what we desperately need as as a church, as as a nation, because we can easily, very easily slip into this arrogance of self sufficiency. Hey, things are going well. So we think we're all good. I'm not that bad, right? We need to see God so that we can also see ourselves rightly. Because our God is not a God to be trifled with. You don't play games with God. And some of you are trying. You you can walk into church. Everything's put together. Nice smile. Think you can live however you want Monday through Saturday. You can fool me. I'm not hard to fool. But you won't fool God. He is holy. And some of you need to see your sin for what it is. And in seeing your sin for what it is, you need to own it, hate it, confess it, turn from it. Otherwise, woe is me is what you will say. You will be lost on judgment day because you will stand before the holy God. And it will be your eternal undoing. But I want you to see what happens next. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So here's the beauty of our God. When we see our need for him, when we freely confess it, when we run to him, when we trust in him, he atones for our sins. He he doesn't leave us in our lostness. He doesn't leave Isaiah calling a curse upon himself. He steps in in that moment. The debt that we owe, he pays. He pays. 
At that moment when Isaiah believed his life was over, the seraphim brings a live coal from the altar and, and touches his lip. His guilt is taken away, his sin atoned for. His, his sin wasn't ignored, wasn't swept under the rug, it was atoned. It was dealt with. And God atoned for his sin through cleansing the area in which he acknowledges most his need. Like, can you imagine how painful that must have been? Like, I don't like to bite my lip when I'm eating a sandwich. That hurts. To have a live coal pressed up against your lips? Like, I just hear, like, a, a steak being laid on a pan. That, like, sizzle. That would have been brutal. And yet, I think if you ask Isaiah, he would have been nothing but grateful to God to have his sin atoned for. And if having your lips seared with a hot coal was painful, can you imagine the cross of Christ? Where he endured not just the wrath for, for his own sin, because he didn't have any sin, but for the sin of all who would come to him. Like, this isn't a pretty picture. The cross is gruesome. It is painful. It is agonizing. It's the picture of the only innocent person to have ever lived bearing the infinite wrath of God. This is how bad your sin is. It's not small, and it does no good to ignore it, wash over it. And the wonder of the gospel is that our holy God in Christ made a way for the sinful people that we are to be reconciled back to him through the death and resurrection of his son. It's not that we can try to clean ourselves up. God doesn't look at Isaiah and say, hey, you've got a lot of work to do before you can stand in my presence. No, God steps in and actually cleans him up. That's the gospel. We aren't self-sufficient. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can get it done. You can't get it done. But God does. And God did in Christ. He pays for our sin. And the beauty of the gospel is not that because of what Christ has done that, that frees us up to make much of ourselves, but rather we're, we're actually freed up to make much of God. So that's why we were made. So the beauty of the gospel is not that we can then feel important, but that we can join with the seraphim and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we are after in trusting Christ. It's him. He's the goal. So, so brothers and sisters, I, I, I don't know what you brought into church today. I have no idea what type of pain, what type of struggle, what addictions, what frustrations. 
but I do know that God is on the throne, that that doesn't change, it isn't going to change, and that He has sent His Son to atone for our sin so that we don't have to say, woe is me, for I'm lost. We can stand before Him, and not just as a a cleansed servant, but actually as a son and a daughter. That, that's the rock we need to set our feet on. That God is in control and that in Christ we're forgiven. The, the culture can move any way that it wants. It, it really can and it plans on it. But God will forever be high and lifted up. That won't change. The cross will stand. The tomb will be empty. And when you come before God who is holy, 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 you will see yourself clearly that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, that you're not awesome, but that He's provided a Savior in Christ who bore our sin on His body on the tree that we might be forgiven. And so, as the, as the deacons make preparation to serve the Lord's Supper, this is a picture, what we're about to do is a picture of that atonement. And the atonement is necessary because God is holy. And we need to understand that God is holy. And not just holy, not just holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can breathe. Because no matter what circumstances you face, that doesn't change. God remains on His throne. The work is finished. And we have every reason to praise God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Thank you for who you are. Because you are holy, holy, holy. And we are not. And that should lead to our condemnation. And for the people in here who refuse to come to saving faith in Christ, then it will be their condemnation. But God, for, for those who know you, we know you as Father because you sent your Son to atone for our sins that we might be in the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy. You are high and lifted up. You are above every other throne. You are in charge. You are in control. And so, God, I pray that you would, you would set that rock under our feet because, again, we, we live in a culture that is changing rapidly, and it's not pursuing you. So Lord, I pray in Christ's name that our vision would be set on you, that we have a picture of who you are, because that will affect everything that we do. And so Lord, I pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, this, this picture of what it is that Christ had to do, body broken, blood shed, 
to atone for our sins, that this twofold might be in remembrance of, of what it is that, that Christ did and in anticipation of being with him for eternity. So prepare our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.